Trigger warning, this podcast contains discussions about suicide, which some listeners may find distressing or upsetting. So please listen with caution. Welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I'm Freddie Cocker and this podcast is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas and start conversations. As you may know by now, each pod I check in with a special guest. We have an atta and a chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. My special guest for this week's episode is someone whose journey shares a lot of similarities to mine in the way our lived mental health experiences were the spark for us to help people and eventually start our own mental health platforms. Lewis Baxter is the founder of Hello, which aims to give anyone and everyone access to conversation. Hello provides a free call line that is open 9am to 9pm every day of the year and exists to unlock the power of conversation and create an inclusive, safe and non-judgmental space for people to chat and connect with others. Lewis is also the Chief Operating Officer of Corogo, a branding agency which helps the most exciting CEOs and founders to build powerful personal brands. On top of all of that, Lewis founded another mental health platform a few years ago called The Blurred Line Group, which is the UK's first funding hub for local mental health charities and community projects. BLG for short, strives to change the way mental health charities are supported in the UK and bring clarity to mental health for all. I also wrote an article for BLG way back when too, for all you listeners as well if you want to go and read that. At just 23, Lewis has already achieved a huge amount in his life. When he's not working on all of those organisations, he's doing public speaking and has already been a two-times TEDx talk speaker where he talked about his mental health journey. I was supposed to do this podcast with Lewis three years ago, but tragically, Lewis's mum developed cancer and he took time away from public speaking to care for her. Tragically, when Lewis was aged just 21, Lewis's mum died and he has been processing and managing the grief and his life without his mum in the preceding years. In this episode we talk about Lewis's professional journey and navigating his way through founding multiple mental health organisations and up to his work now with Corogo, how he became a mental health advocate and public speaker, how he developed those skills and turned that big negative into a positive and his plans for the future now. For Lewis's mental health, he had a mental health crisis in 2016, which led to him almost taking his own life. We discussed the build-up to that moment and what triggered it, the event itself, and how he turned his life around from that moment onwards. We also talk about the grief of his mum, the relationship he had with her, what it's like losing a parent at the young age he did, and navigating the rest of his life without her. So this is how my conversation with the effervescent and brilliant Lewis Baxter went. Lewis Baxter, it has been a very, very long run up to this one, but welcome to the Just Checking In pod, mate. You have certainly kept me waiting. So much time has passed. I had to completely rewrite this running order that I had saved in my archives, but luckily I had saved it in the event that you actually said yes. So thank you so much for coming on, mate. And how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thanks for the invite, most importantly, and thanks for the patience. I'm very, very, very looking forward to this conversation with you. For the listeners, like pretty much all mental health advocates, 
in air quotes, advocates in the community. We connected online. We chatted quite a bit over the COVID-19 lockdowns. And then you took some time away to look after your mum, which we're going to talk about later in the pod. But without further delay, because you've got so much to talk about and your journey's so great and, and such a roller coaster, are you ready to start the show? Let's do it. Let's start with your varied and ridiculous professional portfolio you have at the age of 23 years old, mate, to start the pod. So firstly, talk about the project that you started in university called the Blurred Line Group. So when did you start it? What inspired you to do it? And what were your motivations or objectives to do it too? So the Blurred Line Group was set up in summer 2018, just before I started university at Durham University. And it was quite a simple goal, really. We wanted to get lots and lots of charities, not-for-profits, projects within the mental health space all under one roof and that's exactly what we did we had a full day at a venue in the northwest we got over 30 40 charities not-for-profits all in this one space where people could come and chat to these advocates team members from these organizations and it was a free event and really really great opportunity for people to see what services were on offer within their area because that's something that i felt was missing there's lots of online stuff there's lots of fantastic organizations out there but what i felt was missing was that all under one roof and being able to see the different types of services that were on offer we had lots of talkers on that day or speakers should i say people sharing their words of wisdom we had someone who did sort of well-being retreats we had a psychologist we had a chef we had some motivational speakers it was just a really good day action-packed full of people who wanted to make a difference when it comes to mental health and then in the evening we did a a fundraiser and i think in the end raised about five or six thousand pounds and what we did with that is distributed it via small grants to some of the projects that were there on the day but also others who couldn't make it essentially we believe fundamentally that by giving a small donation a small grant to a community group a project in our areas can make a big big difference so with that grant we also provided mentorship and strategic support as well but in the end i think we raised five or six thousand had over 1500 people come to that day and over 30 organizations showcasing the, the amazing work that they do This is the first organization you had started and you were only about 17, 18 years old. And in this constantly evolving world, as I'm sure you'll know, there are lots of startups being created and some of them end up failing. So given your age and given what you wanted to do, especially as I often joke, there is no money in mental health, which is what I've then is done in my own time most of the time. Was that something you feared or thought about or considered? And and how did you manage your own pressure mentally to make the Blurred Line Group a success? I think on the age point, it was definitely in the early days of setting up that, you know, I was new to it. Whatever age I was, it was the first project really that I didn't want to get stuck into. It's something that meant a lot to me because I think that access to support piece, knowing what support is available in our area is still quite tricky. Now, there are some resources out there now that have during the pandemic blown up and people have been able to access. But at the time when I did this in, in 2018, that wasn't there. I think as well, you know, there were conversations I had with people who did question my credibility, question what I did in the past. And I think basically well, how I convinced them to come is just, look, we share our values. This is the vision. doesn't matter who necessarily is spearheading this. Look at all the other people that have already signed up. There was fantastic charities, fantastic organisations there on the day. But some other charities and organisations needed a little bit of convincing. But all in all, I have to say, and even say this now age 23, you know, there's only been a 
few instances where people have challenged my age. It doesn't happen on a weekly basis. It has happened, but I'm not going to paint this picture that it happens all the time. And then, you know, there was lots of other lessons that I learned around that, around, you know, sustainable fundraising, logistics of putting on an event, which you don't really think about when you're at high school, when you're at sixth form, it's just, you think, oh, events just happen. They don't. (laughs) There's lots of moving parts that actually get put into that. But it was a fantastic first experience with a great vision in mind, a great team, great support. And we made an impact, which is exactly what we set out to do. You spoke there about you only being challenged about your age a few times, thankfully. But on the other end, do you think that your age actually helped you in being completely fearless about what you were setting out to do and not having perhaps maybe the trepidations that someone in their 30s, 40s or even in their late 20s would have? It's a very good point. And I think that there was certainly that fearless attitude. I'd obviously had my own challenges with mental health. I live in the Northwest. It was something that I wanted to do in the Northwest region that I live in. And there was an element of this is what I want to do. This is what the team that we created set out to do. And it was very much had a very positive goal in mind. So even if we were challenged and had some knockbacks, and there were some difficulties logistically putting on an event of that size, don't get me wrong, it wasn't all sort of a seamless creation of that event. But I think it's a very good point. I've seen it from both sides. I've also seen people support my journey because of my age as well, which has been really nice. It's just sort of older people, might be retired, might be people that are philanthropists and stuff like that, where they say, wow, when I was 18, when I was 19, when I was 20, I still get it. When I was 23, I was doing X, Y, Z. And it's so nice to hear their stories and their perspectives. And also mental health being something that does impact us all in some way, shape or form. It's something that people could get behind, could connect with, could resonate with and did support me. So you can see it from both sides. Let's talk about the next adventure you went on, which is Hello. Now, this originally started as something called Chit Chat, where you set it up during the COVID-19 lockdown and you later rebranded it. Same question as BLG. Tell me how and why you started this and what you wanted it to achieve in the wider mental health conversation. Fantastic question. So it was March 2020. We just heard about this COVID-19, this pandemic, lockdown, all these buzzwords that we'd never heard before were very much in all of our vocabulary. And I sat down with a friend after the first national lockdown was announced, of course, a social distance (laughs) sort of conversation. And we spoke about, you know, what could we do to do something in that time? I was off university on a pause looking after my mum full time. So I had lots of time on my hands, to be honest with you. You know, I was I was caring for my mum, but I also wanted wanted the project, I guess, to just get my teeth stuck into, you know, and get stuck into and be a bit of a project to focus on, shall we say, during that difficult time. My friend was in a different situation, but of course wanted to support me. So we set out on this vision to create a world where everyone has someone to chat to. Very simple premise. We just wanted to provide a free, safe space for people to have a conversation. And we didn't label it as a mental health organization. It wasn't about getting support. It wasn't about getting advice. It wasn't about that. It was just about having a conversation, having a chat. And all the training, all the volunteers, all of our messaging, all of our branding was all around chit chat and and then more laterly hello and that was a great thing for people to see that it was quite informal it was quite casual there was no strings attached you could just call and have a natter about your day and there's something so powerful and beautiful around that and that's in the last two years has 
gone on to over 10,000 conversations we've had via hello stroke chit chat, which is fantastic. So, so proud of what the volunteers and the team have done, but also created a community of over 250 volunteers as well from Scotland all the way down to Cornwall, Brighton, London and anywhere in between. It's been a really fantastic journey. Before we finish this topic, although it's not mental health related as such, tell me briefly about your current role in Corogo and what you've learned through that as well. Yes, not mental health related at all. Very much a branding agency for for CEOs and founders. What's been really interesting is seeing that every founder, CEO, director that we work with has a story to tell, whatever that story is. They have a background. They have an upbringing. They have stories that they want to tell to their audiences, whether that's through PR, whether that's on podcasts like this, whether that's just through their social media content. And it's so powerful. It's so amazing to see and hear these different stories from people. We have a lot of our team, a lot of our team and a lot of our clients that post about mental health and well-being and getting up every day and seeing our clients talking about such important topics like that to their audiences. And some of them are very, very big audiences that see their posts, see their content on a daily basis. It's so inspiring. So yes, not mental health related, but every day it's great to see the people that we work with trying to make a difference in the world, whatever that may be. Before we reflect on your mental health journey, mate, just speaking to you for the last 10 minutes as we have, what I found really striking is that I can chat to you for 30 seconds and even at your young age think this is a CEO, this is a person who knows what he's doing, he's founded all these companies. Did that ability or that quality take time to grow or adjust to or was it something innate in you that you always wanted to bring out in yourself? So I think from the age of about 15, my confidence grew. I became head boy of my high school. I mean, it was a little, a little thing. It was something very proud of at the time. And But that gave me the opportunity to do a lot of talking, essentially, and speaking in assemblies and parents' evenings. And, you know, the, when the new little year sevens come in with the uniforms that don't <laughs> fit them, those sort of opportunities. And that taught me a lot about public speaking, about holding yourself in public and conducting yourself and what to say and how to say it and the importance of pausing and looking at the audience, things like that. And then from that moment, onwards my confidence grew I've done a lot of public speaking over the last four to six years but I also believe in what I say you know I won't go on podcasts talking about certain topics that I have no interest in no passion about and certain things that I don't really have an opinion on I'm not going to give any examples but there are lots and lots and lots of things out there I won't go on a podcast talking about rugby I know nothing about rugby right it would be the absolute horrendous interview for both parties and anyone listening But there are other topics like this, you know, what founding organizations, startups, charity sector, mental health and well-being, that sort of stuff. I love it. I love this space. I want to do my bit to make this space better and make an impact in the world. And I hope that passion comes across. Let's reflect on your professional journey then, mate. So first of all, what has this incredible journey, despite it not being a massively long one so far, taught you about yourself? We touched upon it earlier about age. Age really is just a number, how cliche as it sounds. You know, if you've got that passion, you've got that why, what gets you out of bed in the morning and really motivates you to do what you do, then that's incredibly powerful. So I think that's one thing. Age is just a number and and really you can achieve whatever you want to achieve if you set your mind to it. Again, another cliche, but it's so, so true when you get into it. I'm going to put an event on. Let's do it. I'm going to create this organization. Let's do it. I've always had that get up and go attitude, right? And over the last few years, it's really become to the fore of my personality. I don't care what people think about me. 
And that's something, again, that I've learned on this journey. I think really just do it. Get up and go. If you've got an idea, try and create it. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. You know, what's the worst that can happen, really? You try something else. And I think the other thing is about, I think I've learned a lot about myself in, in terms of resilience, that ability to go through some of the horrendous experiences that I've gone through in the last few years but also well in my teenage years 16 17 when I had my mental health struggles that resilience to just brush yourself off and stand back up strong and tall and get back out there into the world because I see so many harrowing stories of people my age and older who are still really much struggling with their mental health so much so that it cripples their daily life and they're not able to do even the smallest of tasks not able to work not able to study not able to socialize and I've been able to do that I hope I inspire others to try and do that themselves as well I think you have mate and just as a final question what has been your proudest achievement on this journey so far fantastic question I think that the two not-for-profits that were set up in the last few years, both of them, was incredibly proud to set both of those up. And, and we made an impact with both of those, which is what it's all about. Okay, But I also think that being able to build that community of volunteers, 250 nationwide, form some of the partnerships that we did with Hello, be able to chat to so many people, some people who didn't speak to anyone for days at a time, people who... Hello was one of their only spaces for a conversation. That is so, so important. We talked all about your varied and incredible professional journey, mate. Now let's go a bit deeper and talk about your own mental health journey. So first of all, I ask all my special guests this question first. Walk me through early life, teenage years, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint? Who's the Lewis we meet here? So I had a great upbringing as a child. Primary school, no difficulties at all, really. Attendance was always high. I always enjoyed going to school on the whole. Certain subjects were more enjoyable than others. And played a lot of football when I was a, was a youngster. That was my big sport. That's what I did probably for most of my childhood, to be honest with you, from being eight till about 20. I was at school during the day and evenings was playing football to a very high level. So much so it was like three or four times a week and the game on a Sunday and that could be travelling anywhere from you know, Scotland to central London, <laughs> you know, there was a lot of travel involved in that. And then as we head into sort of high school, did well with my GCSEs, always did well with my studies, always had a group of friends, again, continued to play football. And that was a, a big, big part of my life. So I'll be really honest, actually, that there was no mental health difficulties, no, no warning signs up till about 15, you know, 16, all through my high school life, there was no difficulties. I think there was little signs, very, very, very little signs of, you know, stress around exams. But I think that was just natural. I think that's something that a lot of people face with the challenges of exams and the, and the stresses that that brings. So there's little signs there, but I sat them all, you know, and I did well and I, and I got through it. Then I joined six forms. So this was late 2015 now, so September, October 2015. I didn't settle in. That was the first feeling so it was a very different environment it was sixth form we, we grow up a little bit we don't have to wear the uniforms that we had to wear at high school there's lots of other 
students that come in from other schools. So it was a much bigger environment, much more independence, much more autonomy on the young people that were there. I'm a person who likes structure. I like things in a certain order, I like routine. And that was a little bit difficult to adapt to, actually. So that was one of the signs that difficulty fitting in. Also around friendship groups as well. I found a step up from GCSE to A-level sizable. Not something that I would never be able to get my head around, but it was very difficult. And when those other things were going on, it made it much, much more difficult. If I'd have settled in straight away, had lots of friends that were supportive and spent a lot of time with, then the only bit to focus on really is the studies. I had a few sort of challenges in that time. And I lasted at that sixth form about four months, probably. I think it was getting towards the February and March. I can't remember exactly, but I know I didn't go back after then. And I also think that that's a very difficult time for teenagers anyway. You know, I was 16, just turned 17, I think. That's a difficult time for young people. There's a lot of, you know, bodily changes that young people are going through. You know, you're becoming an adult very soon, very close to 18, being able to drive and all these things that are happening. I think that was a big part. There was not one big thing that impacted me. I'll be honest, I I can't point to one big thing. What I can point to is a series of very small things that I didn't challenge, I didn't sort out, I didn't nip in the bud early. And this is probably something that you've experienced in conversations with others on this podcast, that sometimes it's one big seismic event. Or for other people, it's a series of little things that sort of snowballed. With some conversation I had with people at Sixth Form who, you know, I wouldn't call it bullying, but I would just call it, you know, not nice things they said to me. You know, when I was in that difficult mindset, didn't help. And those sort of things snowballed together to get me into quite a difficult situation that I was in in March, April of 2016. It was that moment and that period which was your first mental health crisis, shall we say, Lewis, and something which has completely shaped your life, but I don't think would be fair to say defined it. I'm always a big advocate on this podcast by saying my mental health shaped it, but hasn't defined my life. So just tell the listeners what happened from that period onwards and the moment or event where you ended up getting to that really dark place. So I knew something was wrong. The quote I said to my mum and my dad was just something just didn't feel right. And that's what I kept saying. It doesn't feel right. I don't feel myself. That was depression. And when we look back and when I look back, it was absolutely classic symptoms of depression. You know, I wasn't sleeping. I lost all the weight, wasn't eating as much as I love food. (laughs) I absolutely love food. And I I just lost all enjoyment for that. I wasn't socialising. The friends I did have, I pushed away, didn't want to socialise with. I stopped playing football. Football didn't really happen at sixth form for that period of time. So a lot of those things, telltale signs of a mental health illness and it was later diagnosed as depression those symptoms sort of got worse so we're in early 2016 now I'm sort of stopping that sixth form because it just wasn't for me and I took this walk one evening very late in the evening dark pitch black and it's probably about a mile a mile and a half walk from where my house is and there's a big bridge that essentially goes above a an A road, very, very fast A road, cars flying 60, 70 or more miles per hour on there. I just stood on that bridge and I took a step over one of the barriers and I just held on to it while looking below and seeing all these cars going extremely fast below me. And that was the closest I've been. There was no real 
barrier between where I was stood and the ground, which was significantly lower down than where I was and cars flying. That was the closest and most vulnerable, I think, I've ever been in my life. I'm asked, did I want to jump? Did it cross my mind? Of course it did. But there were a few things that just pulled me back. Very small threads. No matter how small they are, they were enough to make me turn back around and walk home. And those threads were family. There were the few friends that I had. And they were just a reflection of just, you know, I'm capable of something. Okay, I'm now not in an education, so I'm not learning. My education's paused at this stage. Not really got anything else. You know, I wasn't playing sport, wasn't doing anything apart from just staying at home all day, every day. But I knew I had something to offer to this world. So I turned back and went home. And the day after took me to that point to then open up to my mum, spoke to her, and we went to the doctors. And from that moment onwards, I felt starting to get back into control. I got some counselling and CBT. It's not for everybody. I understand that some of these things that are prescribed or given to people aren't for everybody. But there are elements of the CBT, elements of the counselling that did help me get back in control. We mentioned earlier about the importance of routine, the importance of structure. That helped me. Getting those tools to help me be structured in my life, get a sense of routine, therefore help me get battle depression, essentially. Because depression can be fueled by lack of structure, lack of routine, because all the days just sort of merge into one. By injecting a little bit of structure in there was one way I started to overcome the difficulties. Do you think looking back that that moment on the bridge was the spark to create BLG, become a public speaker and turn that massive negative into a positive? Not at that point, of course, not at that point. But I say the period of sort of recovery took several months. It's still happening today, albeit a very, very small amount, you know. You know, you don't recover in, in a week and then everything's back to normal. You know, this thing is a process, it's a journey. And it was probably when I went back to, so this is 2016 now, it was a couple of years actually of just going to a new sixth form, sort of settling in there, making lots of friends. With us, but I really enjoyed that sixth form. I drove about 25, 30 miles to get there. It was in a different county to where I lived. I needed a complete fresh start. That was another thing that really helped me on my journey. I knew nobody in my year bar one person I had a little very much an acquaintance but there was one person and the rest of the people in that school I didn't know so it was a real fresh start so I did the sixth form I did a bit of radio presenting during that time I got given a great opportunity to do some presenting for a, a local radio station which bolstered my confidence my ability to talk to well talking to nobody actually just talk to a microphone but you are talking to the people that are listening so like my mum and my grandma that was about it but no there's more than that but that taught me a lot of good skills I hosted a show around mental health and well-being got loads of guests on talking about that and that was a fantastic opportunity as well we're now in 2018 now so this is a couple of years after I'd done my A-levels got through those just about they were that was a very difficult and stressful period but we we got through them and then that summer of 2018 I sort of sat down and thought I want to do an event and one of my best mates, Matty, who has been on the journey with me with 
the Blurred Line Group, and Hello has been by my side. He's the branding, marketing, creative brains to my more operations and finance and fundraising hat. And we're a good blend. And it was at that moment, because he had struggled with his mental health as well. He had a time at Sixth Form where he really battled with similar issues to what I did. So we connected with that and both wanted to do something about it. So I would say a couple of years after the time on the bridge, my thoughts, my journey, my recovery, and then being able to do that event was sort of the first time for me to see, I guess, the positives. I I see it as a positive of my mental health journey. You know, it's very easy to, to look back at the negatives and the challenges and there were a lot of them. I don't think, if I, I know, if I hadn't have had that mental health difficulties, I'm not sure I'd have done the Blurred Line Group. I'm not sure if Hello would have set up. I'm not sure I'd be doing any of my public speaking now in the mental health space. I'm not sure I'd have done the radio show. I probably wouldn't be in the job I am now at the branding agency. I'm genuinely not. I don't know what path I'd have gone down, but it would have been something very, very different to what I'm on now. Knowing what you do now, mate, have you ever thought about if you would come across 16, 17, 18 year old Lewis on that bridge as a bystander, what you would have perhaps said to him or or encouraged him or any mental health first aid you could have delivered to him? Have you ever thought about the conversation you might have had with your previous self? I haven't, apart from this moment that you just asked me then. Don't get me wrong, there have been times where I have spoken to people that are very much in crisis. Not at that level. Well, I say that, actually. I say that. It happened at Hello. You know, we had a free phone service from 9am till 9pm, seven days a week. We were in contact with people who were in very, very difficult circumstances, whether that's emotionally, financially, psychologically, whatever that might have been. Um, So there were instances very recently where I had to talk with people very much in crisis. But I think if I was going back now and I saw me or someone in a similar situation, a 16, 17 year old, I was 16 at the time. Yeah. Was it 17? I was 17. I'm 24 next month. So I'm I'm just confused how old I actually am and how long ago it was. It was a long time ago now, but I was, yes, I was 17. And I think I would talk about some of the things we talked about today about finding your purpose and finding what gets you up in the morning and thinking there, there will be something. It might be so hard to think about what that is, but there will be something. We all have somebody that loves us, a friend, a family member, someone that we see, whoever it is, there are people that care about us. And I would definitely say that because when the fog is there of of depression or whatever mental health illness it might be, it's very hard to see those people and find pick them out. But you are loved. And I think, yes, I've done mental health first aid training and, and I've done a lot of training for the not-for-profit ventures that I've done. Naturally, it's important to be on top of, of all that stuff, but I would get them doing the talking as much as possible, and I would ensure that, you know, let's listen to them. What do they have to say? They've got a story, and I think this might be the only time that someone's actually listened, because I can tell you, until the day after that crisis that I had, I didn't open up. It took me after that point, and normally it is that last chance saloon for some people it's that last thing that they do some tragically do take that step for those that don't it often can spark their recovery it certainly did with me 
the moment which shook your world arguably even more than that 2016 near miss i should say suicide attempt lewis was the loss of your mum in 2020 to cancer so just take me back to the beginning if we can tell me about the person your mum was and your relationship with her well she was somebody who she was my best friend she was somebody who was by my side throughout all my life i'm i'm an only child i have no siblings my mum and dad were together for all of my childhood and my dad worked late often my mum had a, a job from when i was about four or five i think or maybe later maybe seven or eight she had a job where she could finish a little bit earlier she was in education and she just had a bit more flexibility with her time so she used to always be taking me to football she'd become watch me play football she'd take me to all the other activities that i had going on she was a real champion for me and everything that i did she was also a good listener and that's probably why she went into teaching, to be honest with you, at the university. She was a good listener, a good deliverer of ideas. And yeah, she inspired me so much and still inspires me on a daily basis. You know, I get up most days. There's not a day that's gone by since she's died when I haven't thought about her. It might be one day, it's just a little flicker. Other days, it's half an hour of that's all I'm thinking about. Um, of course, in the days following her death, it was every day for pretty much all the time, for weeks on end. Now it's more of a flicker and trying to get those positive bits and those life lessons that she taught me. Some very small that at the time, you know, I wouldn't have thought would have an impact on me. And then you look back and you think, crikey, that is that is something that she, she always told me to follow my passion as well. And I was always somebody that was academic. I'd always done very well at school and I and will be finishing my law degree in May, June. 2023 so I've always been academic but she also told me just follow your passions whatever that might be I tried my hand at football didn't make it as a professional so that was not on the cards um you know I played some music you know could I pursue that that didn't happen so it ended up being that the academic route was what I was destined to do and, and go down but she always told me to follow my passions there's so much more I could say about her and some things I could share that would mean nothing to you and nothing to the listeners because it was a very personal mm. relationship and I miss her very dearly and all I can do every day now is think about some of those lessons she taught me some of those things that she said to me just before she died and I'm going to go out and achieve my goals. Just take me back to that process where you and her both found out that she had been diagnosed and then obviously the process towards when she was told it was terminal. How did you manage that process yourself? How did you support her? Obviously, you said that you were caring for her full time. So just tell me about that process and, and how it led up to that grief afterwards. She was diagnosed the first time in 2017, then she went into remission. So that was when I was at my second sixth form. So only a year or so after I had my, my mental health crisis that we've talked about. And then she went into remission, which was fantastic. And then had a couple of years, maybe two years or just under two years, you know, free from cancer or whatever, free from cancer, whatever remission actually means, right? And then we're in 2019 in the summer. I'd just done one year at university. And I remember it just sitting, sitting me down. I can't remember the exact month. It might have been May, June 2019. She just told me that it's come back and it was a, it was a speck. It was just a, a, a small thing and she was getting treatment for it. It was a shock. Yes, I was upset, but she delivered it in a, in a time, in a place, and in a manner that reassured me. It wasn't a big song and dance and a big, you know, emotional episode from her. She she was very, very able to control her emotions, especially with me. She might have been different with other people, but I think that 
at the time I was more sensitive. I'm not sensitive now, right, at all. I think all these challenges that we've talked about, nothing affects me. Um, I don't really get emotional. I don't really, you know, it just doesn't happen. But at that time I was more sensitive and I needed a different approach to deliver that news. Then I went back to university and November 2019 was when I realised how severe this was. I was at university and, and I, I was texting my mum. We text every day, we called every day. And I, I kid you not, we genuinely did and she didn't get through to me I thought I was just in the library then I got a call from my dad at about half 10 just saying look it's you know I'll keep you updated but she's she's really unwell she's in hospital blah 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 and then the morning after at about 6 a.m 7 a.m I had loads of missed calls and I'm thinking oh my word I, I genuinely crossed my mind that she'd die but it was again my dad and my auntie just saying look you need to come now that was my dad's words you need to come now so I flew down trying not to break any speed limits to Blackburn Hospital, which is where I'm from, from the northeast where I travelled from, two-hour journey. And I remember pulling over at a service station and I absolutely broke down at the prospect of not being able to speak to her, see her again. I got there at the hospital. This is again November 19, and she was really critically ill. It's a positive side of this story in that she, a few days later, got better. She had an operation which essentially cleared out her airwaves, so was able to breathe a lot better. And then November, December, January, February, March, you know, those months we had together, I stopped university and I was a, as a carer then. Then COVID hit, March 2020. So that was extremely difficult. And look, it impacted us all. I'm not here to say that it impacted my family any more than it did others. But there was an added complexity with my mum in that she was very, very ill. She had cancer, it was in several parts of her body. She had a vulnerable immune system naturally because of the treatments that she was on. So I remember when COVID hit, there was a first lockdown. We were so disciplined. You know, my dad worked from home, he got express sign off and normally with the job that he did, couldn't work from home, but he did. And I did too. So we're all just in this little cocoon for several months. And I remember the first lockdown hit and we were washing individual pieces of fruit. So we had a big bowl of like soap and antibacterial stuff. And we were putting in singular apple into this thing and scrubbing it, putting it on the rack because we could not risk mum catching COVID and getting ill because that would have been horrendous. So then obviously looking after her during those months of COVID, I can't remember the month again, it's all a bit of a blur, but it was around April, May time of 2020 that the Macmillan nurses and her doctor said that, you know, we're talking weeks here. And they brought an oxygen tank into the house. You know, I remember some sunny days, we used to like drag the wire out the window and my mum was sat outside sunbathing with her, her oxygen thing in her nose and stuff. And again, she was so resilient was mum. Not at one point, and obviously we'll talk about the final days, but not at one point did she think she was going to die or certainly express that. Of course, it crossed through our minds and it probably crossed through hers. But at no point was she ever talking about that in our company. It was always around cats have nine lives. You know, I've just used another one up. That mentality of I'm just going to get on with it. I'm going to brush myself off and we're going to defeat this. And she did again, compared to where she was in that May 2020, where the, the doctor and, and the Macmillan nurses essentially wrote her off and said, you've got weeks. She lasted several months after in very critical situation and died on the 30th of July, 2020. What was extremely difficult is about a week before she died, she got took into the hospital. So this might have been 22nd, 23rd of July. There was only one visitor allowed because of COVID. 
So only my dad could go. So I remember every day FaceTiming her. But again, not at that point did I realise that she she was sadly not going to come out of hospital. But that was incredibly difficult looking back. Several days of her being in hospital with my dad and me not being able to just drive there and go and see her because of COVID. The doctors and nurses on the ward a day before she died opened up the ward and said, look, because of X, Y, Z, we will allow you, not everybody in the family, of course, it wasn't like hundreds of people flocking into the hospital, but it was my mum's sisters, my mum's parents, my dad and I, so, you know, six, six people were allowed in. And we saw her and we sat with her and she was very, very ill and probably drugged up on on morphine and things, but she was with it. She was listening to what we're saying. She knew I was there, knew we were there. And I'm so glad we got in that day because I said to her, see you tomorrow, mum. And walked out of the hospital, had a meeting on that night, typical. I didn't want to stay any longer. It, it's not a nice environment to be in. I stayed for a few hours and that was enough for me and enough for my mum. So I left and that next day I never saw her because my dad came home from the hospital the day after and said, sorry, she died this morning. But thankfully I managed to go in. It's not ideal. I'd love to have been there every single day on the run up to those final moments, but I got a few hours and that was precious. And not only that, Let's not forget that I stopped my university and was with her day in, day out, every day for several months during COVID. Okay, I was working on a project, but I was in the same room with her as she was sat on a rocking chair, you know, and that is incredibly special, incredibly precious memories I have. After she died, mate, rightly for your mental health, you went dark from social media, you took the time to mourn for her in private and manage that grief. What were those two years like for you? Did you on one hand, perhaps shut people out who were checking in until you got better? Did you chuck yourself into work? How did you process it yourself? Hmm. You know, I, I've I've not, I think I've only cried once or twice since mum died in terms of thinking about her. And I'm not saying this in a way to say, oh, look how brave he is, right? I have just, a, for what I saw and the resilience and strength of my mum taught me a lot about life and taught me a lot about how I can face difficulties and challenges that I encounter. It was the most difficult thing that's ever happened in my life, obviously losing my mum. And I did take a step back from certain things. It was still COVID at this time. But then after a few weeks and a few months of just taking it slowly, I was still involved in Hello, still doing that, still doing that quite a lot of hours every week, actually, just to throw myself into something else. That's what I needed. I needed a distraction. I needed a place to vent, pardon the pun. But I did. I needed that safe space to be able to do that. And yeah, and this job that I'm in now, I've been doing that for a year. But I started conversations with the CEO of the company I'm at now the January following my mum's death. So that's four or five months. The new year hit, it was 2021. It was that opportunity right now. Now's the time just to start getting a little bit more in control of what I'm doing. Still not forgetting about the loss, but using that as fuel to drive me forward. Because of course, there were days where I was laying in bed all day, right? The few days after my mum died, even some weeks, occasionally, not every day, but there were times. And I felt a point that I might've been slipping back into sort of a depressive episode. Naturally, it didn't happen. I think depressive episodes, yes. And feeling just very, very low. Depression, no, that didn't happen. But I can see how that could started to have, have gone into that. And I, I put coping mechanisms in place and put tools in place to make sure 
that that didn't happen. But two years on now, as I say, just over two years on since she died, very much with me every day, the thoughts, the words of wisdom that she shared. But as I re-emphasize, it's fueling me forward rather than bringing me back. When we spoke off air, mate, you were also very keen to talk about how parental grief affects young people like yourself when it happens. So what would you want any of my younger listeners to know from your experience that they can use in their life, whether they've lost a young parent or whether they haven't even lost one at all? When you do lose someone, people say, you know, take it a day at a time. And of course, that's very important. You know, let's not try and see it too big picture in those early days after someone dies. You're just going to take it a day at a time. But one thing I realized is taking it an hour at a time, (laughs) because actually there were some hours of a day where I was absolutely uncontrollably sad. And as I say, didn't, didn't really cry, but was just very low, visibly, physically, just emotionally, everything. And then it was a few hours later where something happened or someone said something that just picked me up. So I think one thing is just to really embrace those feelings and understand that one minute on one day, you might be really quite low. And then a few hours later, you might be on a real high. Not saying that's necessarily a good thing to be sort of flicking around those emotions, but do just ride the wave because that's extremely natural. The second thing I'd say is just, you know, surround yourself with good people. And those people don't necessarily have to be those that understand grief. Sometimes that's not what you want, actually, someone to be preaching and saying, this is what happened when, you know, this is what you need to do. That's not always the good thing. But just people who will listen to you talking about your experiences with grief. Like, you know, this podcast being an opportunity for people to share about, you know, mental health struggles, journeys challenges that they've had i think with grief specifically you need that outlet to have a conversation about and share your emotions it is something that is incredibly personal right is grief and every single person will deal with it in a different way and all you could go off is all i can go off is my experiences with what i've gone through i think the final thing is it's very very easy to be pulled back my brain to be pulled back into her last days and seeing her photos of her being very, very ill. And what you've got to do is is really just try and put that to one side. Easier said than done. And focus on the positives. So I wrote some of her quotes down that she said to me. I've got a little album of her photos, of the best photos. No photos in there are ones that she looked ill in. And also things she told me that I needed to do or you know, one of them, she said, you're going to finish your degree. And there have been moments over the last few years where I didn't want to go and finish my law degree. I can tell you that. (laughs) And I was almost thinking, no, I'll pack that in. Thank you very much. But I will finish it for her. And secondly, for me. But what that allows you to do, just back to my point, is when you are having a difficult day, where you are being sucked back into sort of the challenges of grief, and it might even be someone that hasn't yet died, but is seriously ill right? You can be filled with all these negative memories and negative sort of perspectives. And just looking at those photos of lovely, positive photos where she's smiling and enjoying herself, that's fantastic. Seeing her quotes that she said, fantastic. And listening to or or reading, I guess, her words of wisdom to me and, and pointers in the right direction. I don't have any regrets, right? I genuinely don't. But I wish I had more videos of her. And I know it sounds silly, but I have lots of photos. I have lots of photos, selfies, you know, photos of me and her, just hundreds, not thousands. I'm sure sure other mums and and the children have more photos, but they have quite a lot. But I have very, very few videos. 
and I can't hear a voice. Thank goodness for iPhone having the photos. They have lives where you hold it and then it, you know, they move. And like that is just amazing because it takes a still and it brings them back to life for several seconds. That is so powerful. So what I would suggest, and people think, oh, why do I need to do that? Blah, 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 blah. Yeah, I thought that. I thought she'd still be with me now, right? I didn't think she'd die. And I really do wish that in the, not the last few months, but throughout my childhood or when I got a phone, you know, which was probably from 13, 14, from that moment onwards, if I'd have thought about what I knew now, I'd have got a lot more videos and little snippets of her voice. Obviously, you're now left with one parent, Lewis, and you said your dad, you know, worked a lot of nights, so he, he wasn't around as regularly as your mum was when you were a child. But has your bond strengthened with your dad? Have you managed to have conversations that are perhaps more open or more honest since your mum's passed or not? Uh, I certainly think the relationship has got stronger naturally. You know, he's taken on some of the responsibilities of my mum and some of her mindset. They were fundamentally very different people. And my dad, I know, is not going to be someone who overnight is going to become (laughs) my mum. He won't mind me saying this, but there was an element of good cop, bad cop. And most of the time it was my dad as bad cop being that, you know, challenging and banning me off my Xbox for several weeks, you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> Whereas mum was like, oh, I'll I'll convince your dad to give it you back tomorrow, that sort of thing. And and he was never going to become, you know, take all of mum's tendencies and all of mum's strengths and, I guess, negatives as a parent. He was just going to be him. So I think we were able to talk a little bit more around, certainly around like university and, you know, I was going back. So how do we go around making this happen? So it was very pragmatic and very logistical. And that's how my dad tends to work. Less of the softly, softly approach, which I think is is actually, it's not a bad thing. I don't want anybody. It is a balance. It really is a balance. And I think having that voice of my dad, and, and I don't see that that often. He has a partner now and has had a partner for probably about a year. And he spends a lot of time with her. But when I do see him, you know, you just got to make the most of that time that you do have together. And I'm I'm working full time. I've got my studies. I've got all these things going on. And actually, when I do see him, it's just about making the most of that time. It's been two years now, Lewis. And given everything you've achieved and the man you are, if your mum was listening to this podcast, I'm sure she is somewhere. What would you say to her? And what do you think she would say to you? Keep studying or something like that? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely would be up there. She's like, nine months to go. Come on, <laughs> you're, you're nearly there. Just just get your, what did she say? Get your nose in a textbook. That's what she used to say <laughs> when I just wasn't. So when I just saw that, just got the textbook and just was like this, you know. So she's she'd come in and she says, what are you doing? So I've got my nose in the textbook, like literally, like I might, I might not actually be reading what's on the page, but I can tell you, I've, I've done what you said, those things. But she had those little phrases like that, like nose in a textbook. Those are what I write down and still remember because I always think, what would she say? I think she'd be incredibly proud of the fact I've gone back to uni because I think there was elements where, well, we certainly spoke about me not going back, even when she was still alive. And we spoke about, I don't want to go back. And Budgie just said, promise me, you will go back and finish your degree, even whether I'm here or not. And I said, well, I said, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, not thinking that she wouldn't be here, actually. Just going, yeah, yeah. Go. But when it actually happened, I'm thinking, crikey, I'm going to actually fulfill that promise. I think she'd be also saying, how well I've handled grief. There is no necessarily 
a good way, a bad way to handle it. As I say, it's very personal and all I can do is talk about it from my perspective. But I think she would be very proud of how I have been resilient, how I have showed my emotions and I have, you know, I've not shut off everybody. I've opened up to her sisters and her parents. You know, there have been people that I have been open to and shared the perspectives and, and really talk about the negatives as well as the, the highs. But I learned that off her because she faced some crap in those few months before she died. It was horrendous. Living with a terminal illness, I cannot imagine what goes through your mind. Not only is your body fighting off this illness and the elements of it is shutting off, you've also got the psychological and emotional sort of turmoil of, of living with a, with a disease like cancer. Awful. But she was so strong and that helped me. It's very hard to put into terms how strong she was. So, for example, she said, so a few months, when she got that terminal diagnosis in May 2020, that she said, oh, yeah, you've got weeks. She went, oh. And then just her brain for like 10, 15 seconds just stopped. And it was like, right, this is my plan. I'm going to be on these tablets. And then I'm going to go to see this doctor. And then I'm going to do this. And then I'm going to do that. It was very, I'm getting through this. And that was incredibly strong. Yeah. It's hard to put into words about how strong she was. And I think I would say to her that she lived an incredible life in 52 years. Like stuff that she did was amazing. The traveling, you know, opportunities that she had, ability to go and see some amazing places around the world and do things. And there's a lot of people who get to 80, 90, who don't do any of that. So I would say to her that that has inspired me to do traveling when I can <laughs> and when I get a moment to go and see some of these wonderful places that she wants to do. We always said we'd go to like Australia together when I finished university. Never happened, but I'm going to go to Australia on my own and I'm going to see some of the things that she saw because she's inspired me to travel and to follow your passion. Again, follow your passion, such a cliche, but when you know what your passions are <laughs> and you follow them, that's basically what it is. And she's inspired me to follow mine that was beautiful mate let's reflect then on your mental health journey so a what has it taught you about yourself and b if you could go back and talk to that teenager lewis who was on the bridge considering whether to take his own life perhaps the lewis who was in university about to take that first leap into starting blg or the 21 year old lewis who was in the depths of that grief for his beloved mum what would you say to him knowing what you do now so i'll answer that question first I think what I'd say is that there's a great quote, I can't remember word for word, but it's A.A. A. Milne who wrote Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> there we go. And there's an amazing quote in there. And I can only remember a snippet, but it's, you are stronger than you believe. And it's that mindset where we think we're weak or we think we're not going to be able to cope. We're not going to be able to overcome whatever challenge, but you are, your body, your mind is stronger than you believe. And I think that that's something I would tell the younger, more fragile self who was in the difficulties of depression in 2016, 2015, 2016. I would definitely say that. But I also went on my own journey then. And as I say, you know, going through that, facing those emotions, facing those challenges, going on that journey of depression as maybe the person I am today. It's molded who I am today. So words of wisdom are good or important, but actually I found my own way then. And I'd also say the same for when I was suffering with grief, you know, 
at the end of the day, it's an incredibly difficult thing for any 21 year old to go through. Any young person to go through is, is losing a parent. And you hear, I know of other people who have lost parents younger than me, as in, you know, they were 15, 16 when they lost their parents. And it's incredibly difficult. But I would also say the same point, which is you won't forget these people. You won't forget them. What you will do is they will be with you on this journey after they pass. And, and I'm not a religious or a spiritual person, but they are with you somewhere, guiding you those words of wisdom, those little points of reference, little quotes that they've, that they've said. They will very much be with you for a very, very long time. And I'm so glad that I've just not shut them off. And I'm so glad that I, I captured them when I heard them. Fortunately, I've got a very good memory as well. So I remember a lot of the quotes that she said without having to write them down. But I need to write them down as the memory wanes. I need to write them down so I don't forget them. But no, very, very important. What was the first question? What has it taught you about yourself? I'll come back to it about resilience. I was quite a sensitive and fragile youngster, right? I think being an only child, having a mum who was very, very protective in a positive sense, of course, but there were downsides to that. She used to say, I, I wrap, wraps me up in cotton wool, you know, the idea of like protecting me from, from everything. And that did make me, in some respects, a little bit sensitive, a little bit fragile, quite emotional at times, not the most confident in certain social settings with people of my own age. I think that was all very, very true to say. But I think those life experiences from the depression to the journey and roller coaster with my mum to losing my mum, it's taught me that I'm so, so resilient and that's now employed in lots of other ways so in business and in in things like that when I'm making decisions and I'm trying to see it from a different perspective well nothing is going to be as bad as what I face losing my mum it's perspective so if I think something's going wrong at work or I think there's a difficulty or a problem that needs solving I just think come on Lewis perspective and I think that's so, so important. We all have different points of reference for perspective and different challenges that we can draw on and think, look, if I've got through that, I can get through this. And so, so true when you're in work, <laughs> there are problems that think seem so bad and so big, but actually they're really not. And tomorrow's another day. Before we finish with our mental health chat, I wanted just to have a separate topic for your mental health advocacy work, mate. And you've talked a little bit about it already, but just tell me how the journey started. And was it something you initially embraced or was it something that you struggled with? Or was it something because of what you said about being your head boy and having that public speaking confidence? It was something that came quite naturally. I think before the age of 15, I wouldn't say I, was, I would have been able to do public speaking and I did do public speaking, but not on the scale that I've, I've gone on to do it at. I think, yeah, you know, doing a lot of talks at high school was definitely something that, that influenced my ability. But then also the radio presenting, you know, doing a show every week for like 18 months, two years was something big. Doing a lot of live events as well. So like big fundraising events and being the host, being the compare of those events. Again, that was something. Different audiences as well. You know, people see me sometimes as quite a corporate, quite formal person, but I do have a, a very fun side and I, I do get it out when it's, you know, certain <laughs> situations, right? I remember doing, um, it was a big fun run, right? And there's hundreds of people doing this fun run or fun walk. I can't remember, or both. I think some were running, some were walking. I remember doing it and I'm, I'm doing the warm up at the start with a microphone and I'm like, I've never done that in my life, but 
what an amazing experience doing star jumps in front of hundreds of people and teaching them like how to stretch before doing a run. But it was all little things like that that added together these experiences of being in public that were speaking in public that molded me to to my speaking sort of what I'm doing now. And then I did the TEDx talk in 2019, did another one in 2020. That was a virtual one, which was which was quite interesting. But I, I think at the end of the day, we've spoken about this, you know, having that passion and being able to talk for hours like we can around mental health, around well-being, around looking after ourselves. You know, it makes it so much easier. It's not public speaking at all. It's just talking about something that you're interested <laughs> in and you're passionate about and have lots of insights and ex- expertise and experiences to share. That's all. It is really. And I love every minute minute of it. And there's some of the highlights for me, the talks. Yes, the TEDx talks are fantastic. I've talked to, at some big companies about mental health, both in person and virtual. But I've also loved going back to a school, for example, talking to a school and seeing all these kids clearly not wanting to be in assembly to start with and thinking I'd much rather be in bed or in lesson or whatever. But then at the end, seeing how you know you could drop a pin and every single person in, you, you would hear the pin you would not hear anything from anyone these kids are like 13 14 15 and at the start they might have been noisy and sometimes as kids can be you know a little bit disruptive with their mates but at the end silence and those for me are the most powerful talks that I do and I prepare I prepare a lot more for those talks than I would do for a podcast because I like podcasts to be conversational and I like because it is it is two ways and that's that's how it should be but when I'm doing a talk and you're thinking about the delivery and you're thinking about the audience who are going to be in that room and and how you pause and emphasize certain bits yeah that, that's probably the biggest highlight for me and as a final question in an interview you gave to the guardian in october 2019 you talked about your initial talks and the stuff that you did as a head boy and one part i want to point out is that there was one speech you gave where the reaction to it was very interesting because you said that a lot of these so-called alpha males in air quotes in your year group who had previously maybe exhibited a bit of bravado shall we say a bit of a mask of bravado came up to you and opened up about their mental health so what was your reaction to that and did it give you perhaps an extra determination to show people that men are not perhaps the simplistic one-dimensional creatures that many believe or are placed upon us maybe yeah, I, I think it's only looking back because obviously the, the interview I gave to The Guardian, that's a couple of years after I did the talk. And it was only after that I really realised how great that was, actually, for, as I say, typically alpha males, bravado. It was an all-male school, was the sixth form. So these people had been in this environment for many, many years of just males. And that idea of having a stiff upper lip, having that you know, nothing's going to impact me. Nothing's going to affect me. I don't show emotions. And this new kid, after being there like a month, decided to do a talk around mental health and his journey. And as I say, another moment where everybody was so quiet and I had people coming up to me after. And I just thought, wow, I'd have never guessed you'd been someone that had gone through that because they hold themselves you know, together so well. And, and, and visually, you just think, you know, these are not going to be someone who struggles with mental health. And I think it does what you said there. It shows that any of us can be impacted, even those that, looking at them, we wouldn't think so. Our final topic of conversation, Lewis, and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests if we have time. It is a general natter and a chat about our mental health. So firstly, how is your mental health, mate? Good. At the moment, good. Ups and downs, but genuinely good and I think the nice weather at summer has helped that. 
Excellent, mate. What age were you when you became self-aware of your mental health for the first time and you realised that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind and a product of your mental health? I think I started to learn the coping mechanisms when I was sort of 17 at sixth form. We've talked about the, the challenging experience I faced there. But I think self-aware, it's only quite recently, the last few years, where I've faced other crap in my life and I've just took a step back reflected and thought about that then I've realized actually this you know you can separate as you say separate the physical from the emotional psychological so I think it's only only more recently and some people are very aware from an early age others take experiences and challenges to actually uncover some people never really become self-aware of that and each of those are okay everybody's different what things do you find in life that trigger your mental health mate so it could be things people say to you it could be a sound a sensation being in a particular social environment or have you not figured all of them out yet fantastic question not many things trigger me now right so again i'm able to for example let's work and studies is a big part of my life right at the moment and it's going to be for the next nine months i'm able to separate those challenges stresses anxieties around those things different from the lewis the person and I think that's very important because none of that defines me. What happens at work, what happens in that subject of my law degree is not going to define Lewis as a human, Lewis as a person, right? So separating that's really, really important. But one thing that does jump out to me is certain social situations, right? So, you know, things like bars and nightclubs and things like that, where there's a lot of people that typically my age I'll be honest, I don't love my time in these places, if I'm being brutally honest. I'm not like absolutely the life and soul of the party thinking this is what I want to do every day. But when mates want to do it, and I think, do you know what, I will do it on this occasion. But I also know when to stop and when to, do you know what, I've reached my limit now. I'm, I'm not enjoying this at all. There's not a flicker of enjoyment. I'm getting a taxi and I'm going home. But I think that that is the big example that jumps out to me. I would much rather have a coffee or a drink in a quiet environment, right, where you can actually have a conversation rather than having ear problems caused by very, very loud music. (laughs) That's completely fair, mate. On the flip side, what positive tools and methods do you use in your own life to improve your mental health or help you feel better? Which ones have worked for you and maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't? So structure, discipline, routine, really, really important. And, and sort of having a bit of a schedule that's mixed with different things, you know, not doing the same thing all day, every day, because it just doesn't work for me. And a lot of other people need that variety in the day. So so that's been something that has worked. One I've got divided opinions on, which is exercise, right? So I think there's elements of this that are very much true. So I'm getting into the gym at the moment, the last 10 weeks, very much been going to that and really seeing benefits from that and the odd run. But some people think they have to be at the gym every day to support their mental health. And for them, that might work. But I tried that. I tried being, you know, go to the gym really, really regularly or doing a bit of exercise every day. It almost came a little bit overwhelming because I then started to punish myself because I'd not been to the gym or I wanted a day off or something like that. So I'd say that the gym and exercise is something I've got divided opinions on. I think the other thing that worked was the therapy. You know, the counselling and the CBT was very, very good for me. I took elements of that that worked, though. And there was also elements of that that didn't work. And it's about when you go into things like counselling and CBT, it's about going into them with an open mind and understanding that there's going to be some bits that you do resonate with, do connect with and do help you. And there's going to be other bits that don't. 
what is the best book, or as I call it, mental health Bible you've read for your mental health? Now, it can be mental health or self-help related, but it doesn't exclusively have to be. It could be fiction, could be anything you want. Wow, brilliant. That's good. <laughs> I can't answer that because I think that there are little things from a lot of things that I've read, right? I'm not the world's biggest reader. I think because in recent years, all I've been doing is law books. I think there's not much I can take <laughs> from that and answer that question, right? But, you know, I used to read lots of books, you know, from Shakespeare to other things. You know, I've read a lot and there's nothing that's jumping out there. But I think podcasts have been something that I've deeply connected with in recent months. For example, I'm not getting paid for this, but the High Performance Podcast with Jay Humphreys, and I think it's fantastic. And, and there's little lessons from that that I've taken from it. When I've read so much during the day, the last thing I want to do is read at night. So actually listening to a podcast sometimes really does help me. And just taking a few little lessons from that, little quotes from that has been really good. But there's one book that I've read recently, but I also read in the past, was Start With Why by Simon Sinek and it's a book that a lot of people read got a lot of downloads a lot of purchases on Amazon whatever and that was really good because that was all about finding your purpose how brands find their purpose companies he cited like Apple Harley Davidson as as two big ones that know what their why is why they exist but I also have taken some lessons from that and thought about it as an individual what is my why what gets me up in the morning what motivates me and that's something that's very very important in life if there was a mantra in life that summed up your mental health what would it be and why, mate? Hard. I don't know. I, I stunned me that one. Get your nose I in a textbook. <laughs> well, that is well, get your nose in a textbook. Yeah, that is going to get a tattooed on my forearm. <laughs> uh, um, I, I think that not quite a mantra, but I think that the take every day as it comes, take every hour as it comes, I think is very, very important. It's one that jumps out to me because, as I've said in the past, you know, Days are, are, you know, lots of time between days, 24 hours, but sometimes in a day itself, you know, one minute you can be struggling and feeling really rubbish. And then a few hours later, you feel fine. And I think just trusting that process, trusting the journey, being on that journey, embracing every single moment and understanding that things will get better. And as a final question, mate, what more do you think we have to do? to ensure that men from all backgrounds, all walks of life feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health, if most importantly, they want to do it? Mm. Great question. I think we've come a long way. I think we should be proud how as a, as a country, as charities, institutions, universities, you know, there's going to be people, it divides opinion. There are some people, a lot of people that think we can do some of those things I've just mentioned there can do more. One of the things that I think it comes back to is is funding though. I'm a big, big, big believer that the grassroots organisations, the small projects that support men in our communities, those need the funding, they need the support to be able to keep doing the amazing work that they're doing. Because ultimately when the doors shut, the opportunities for men and people of all backgrounds to access support goes because there are only, I'm not, I could speak for hours about this, but there are only certain environments that men do feel comfortable in. And it's those environments that need the funding and the support to allow men to be able to access that, that support. So funding is a big one for me. And unfortunately, I think a lot of it does come back to that. Lewis, you're an absolute legend, mate. That's a great note to end on. Thank you so much for coming on the Just Checking In podcast and talking to me, mate. Thank you. Pleasure. 
Well, that's all we've got time for on this bumper episode of the Just Checking In podcast. A massive thank you to Lewis for finally coming on the Just Checking In pod after that three-year run-up and talking about his professional journey and the loss of his mother for the first time publicly. I'll drop all of the social media links to the Blurred Line group and to Hello in the show notes. As always, thank you to all the vendors who tuned into this episode. If you've liked what you've heard, give it a share on social media. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. If you're feeling generous, write us a review and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. If you like what we're doing here at Vent, please consider supporting us by going to www.patreon.com slash ventshelpuk or you can make a one-off donation to our GoFundMe. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, guys, it is always okay to vent. Vent.